Find out which guests are being featured this week. Read our network press releases and read the blog posts from your favorite hosts. Go to iradioblog.com today. Powered by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Patricia Raskin Positive Living, the program that brings you practical and inspiring principles for living more authentic, engaging, and passionate lives. Created by Patricia Raskin, a catalyst for positive change. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. And now, with Patricia Raskin Positive Living, here's your host, Patricia Raskin. Welcome, everyone, and welcome. Welcome to Patricia Raskin Positive Living, right here on voiceamerica.com. You know, many times we can find answers to health issues by going to different books or looking things up online. Many times there are home remedies or the guide to alternative methods. But we have someone who's written a book that we don't see very much, and that's the answers to psychology questions. Now, the questions about emotions and thinking and behaviors, we don't always find those as readily. My guest today is Lisa Cohen, Ph.D. Her brand-new book, is the Handy Psychology Answer Book, your smart reference. Lisa Cohen is a licensed clinical psychologist. She graduated from the University of Michigan and went on to receive her doctorate in clinical psychology excuse me, from the City University of New York. After obtaining her degree, she worked in several hospitals in the New York City area and in 1996 came to Beth Israel Medical Center, where she is now Associate Professor of Clinical Psychiatry and the Director of Research for Psychiatry and Psychology. Dr. Cohen divides her time between clinical work, teaching, and scientific research. Welcome, Lisa. Oh, thank you very much. Well, you know, I really, I mean, this is a very large, large book. It's almost, well, it is. It's 500 pages. So it's not something that you usually read cover to cover, but when you need an answer to a question, it is here. And it's really incredible. I mean, you even have topics on how different personality types are suited for different jobs. What is charisma? What are biological theories of sex, sexual orientation or homosexuality? I mean, it, it runs the gamut. And it, uh, it, to me, it would be, it's a great reference book for people on any questions they have, particularly on anxiety, depression, which is so common today. Why did you decide to write this book? Well, psychology is something that I have really been in love with since I was a teenager, and I've spent my entire adult life in this field. And so I see how it's so, so relevant to so much of everyday life. I mean, psychology studies what we think, what we feel, how we behave. So there's really no area of human endeavor that isn't somehow connected to psychology. But in spite of this, it's very surprising to me to realize how little of really good quality scientific information about psychology is available and accessible to the general public. 
So what's happened is that there's an awful lot of exciting work going on in the universities and the laboratories and the hospitals, but that isn't translated to the public. There is such things as popular psychology. There's a lot of that, but it's not as well linked to what's really happening um, in the laboratories. Well, I think the first question I'm going to ask you, because I think depression is so rampant now, and people are taking meds a lot. What's the difference between anxiety and depression? And do you take meds for anxiety? Do you take meds for depression or both? Well, I think we need to look at both anxiety and depression on a continuum. So both of these relate to human emotions, natural human emotions. So anxiety relates to fear and depression relates to sadness. And this is part of our biological makeup, and it's how we respond to our environment. So if something is threatening, we will naturally have a response of fear. If we have loss um, or if there are things that make us sad, we will have a natural reaction of sadness. But when these reactions become really pronounced and very disproportionate to the actual triggers in the environment, Mm -hmm. and they really go on for a long time, then you're moving from the the sort of normal day-to-day reactions into the clinical realm. And so in the early stages of an anxiety disorder or a depression disorder where you can still function um, and you're not really impaired in your day-to-day abilities, then probably psychotherapy would be the best intervention. However, when anxiety becomes so extreme that it's really crippling or depression also becomes crippling, then you have a real diagnosable um, mental disorder. And at that point, uh, medication can be very, very helpful. Right. And what you're talking about with non-functioning is when you cannot do your daily tasks anymore. Is that what you mean? Sure. I mean, people with a major depressive episode may not be able to get out of bed. They can't concentrate. They lose weight because they're not eating. And they can even have suicidal ideation. And in some cases, they can make suicidal attempts. So at this point, you're speaking of something really dangerous, and they really need um, pretty intensive intervention. And I would definitely recommend medication at that point. All right. But let I me switch that... a little bit. Let me switch a little bit, Lisa. I mean, you've written this book, and I'm sure you've had you give many talks. What do people ask you most often when they see the book or after you've given a lecture? What is it people want to know? What are they confused about? Well, there's so much, really. It's kind of hard to pinpoint one thing. Um, People sometimes are interested in some event in the news and how can you explain that. Uh, For instance, if when Jared Jared Lochner had his shooting, people had questions about that. A lot of times people will have personal experiences similar to the question you just asked me, where they'll say, my girlfriend's on Prozac, what does that mean? Um, So there's a lot of questions about that. Um, And when I go to a party and people ask me what I do, sometimes they'll just say, are you analyzing me? (laughs) (laughs) Which the answer is no, I'm really not. Speaking of which... I thought it was so fascinating in your book how you talk about different personality types that are applicable or that are, are good for certain jobs. So, you know, there is a lot of variety in people's personalities. And in the clinical view, we talk about different kinds of personality disorders, which the idea that these variations are abnormal and they're problematic. But you can also look at normal personality, and they're very different. You know, there's a lot of variety of normal personalities. And so certain people can fit 
into certain environments very well and not fit so well into other environments. So one way that people really do seem to vary is on a kind of introverted, shy, Mm -hmm. reflective um, mode versus an extroverted, um, outgoing, sensation-seeking, maybe kind of um, thrill-seeking mode. And this is just normal range. And people who are more extroverted might do really well in sales, um, whereas people who are more introverted might do well in something that takes real concentration and reflectiveness. And might be a steady um, kind of job, nine to five. Sure. Sometimes that can be the case also. Um, some people have a more greater tendency towards anxiety and may need more regular structure. Other people need more diversity. Um, really so it's, mm-hmm, it's really good to have a sense of who you are as a person because not, no one can do everything. And, and to find other people that can help you in the areas that you're weak. Mm-hmm. Right, right. A lot of very successful people become successful because they understand their liabilities and they find other people to complement their liabilities. Now, one of the things you write about in your book is what makes a marriage last. Boy, that's a big one. That's certainly something that has resonance for most people um, who are trying to make relationships work. So, for one thing, we know something about what makes a marriage fail. So, we know that marrying too young um, is highly associated with divorce. So, it seems to be that 23 is kind of the cutoff year, that people who marry before 23 have a higher likelihood of divorce. But that continues up to age 30, that the later you marry, uh, the better your chance of the marriage working out. Up to age 30 after that, it doesn't matter so much anymore. Also, having financial problems, not having social support, and not having good role models of positive relationships is associated with poor marriage outcome. So that tells what's associated with marriages not working, but we want to know also what makes a marriage work. Go ahead. So intimacy. I'm sorry? Go ahead. What are they? Okay. Yeah. So intimacy, affection, that's obviously very important. Good communication is very important. And shared interests and values. There's the idea that opposites attract. Well, opposites may attract, but that doesn't make for a sustainable relationship. Long-term marriages, people have a lot in common. And then finally, what's really important is how people argue and how they conflict. Because it's not the amount of conflict that determines whether marriage works or not. It's the way people conflict. So if they engage in uh, arguments or disagreements in order to solve the problem, that's a much better outcome than if they engage in a disagreement or an argument in order to win. So the point is to state your point, state what you feel, state what the situation is, and try to negotiate with your partner in a way to come to a mutually satisfying agreement. But if you're blaming, attacking, um, calling names, this is associated with uh, marital tension and with the marriage going downhill. Let's talk about money. You know, there's a lot of talk about what makes people happy with money. I interviewed Marcy Shamoff, who wrote Happy for No Reason, and in her book she states that unless you're below the poverty line, money doesn't determine happiness. But there are other people that say that money is a factor, and if you're making you know, less than a certain amount, 75000 a 100000 that it can present a problem. What's your feeling psychologically in terms of money and happiness? 
Well, that's a really fascinating area, and we're beginning to get more and more research about it, and I think it is really critical. I think the research shows that not having money is bad for mental health, and people are unhappy when they don't have money. But once they have enough, then getting more money doesn't make much difference. Now, then the question is, how much is enough? And that can be influenced by many factors. For one, it depends how expensive (laughs) your living environment is. Mm -hmm. So if you're living in a place where real estate is really expensive, you may need more money. So that's why I wouldn't say 75,000 is the cutoff point. I'm not sure if we have a real actual cutoff point. It depends. It really depends on the factors. Sure, sure. The other thing that's interesting is that we tend to decide what's enough based on our neighbors. So even if we have a very comfortable life, if our neighbors have a lot more money than us, then we will engage in social comparison and we'll start to feel inadequate and get dissatisfied. Well, but what about, Lisa, if you have lived a certain way and now you can't live the way you did, and that was your comfort level, you were happy at that level, do you think that makes a difference? So you mean that people lose their income and, and then they lose yes, their... Yes, they lose, they yeah. lose the, the, the lifestyle that they had. That's certainly a loss. It's a loss on many levels. I mean, it may be that there's certain aspects of that lifestyle that really are comfortable and that make the person happy and give them some control over their life. Mm-hmm. Another thing to keep in mind is that having control over your life is critically related to life satisfaction. Um, so losing that can be a big loss. Um, secondly, there's also a sense of shame that can be associated, again, with the social comparison. I think if everybody loses money together, that's a lot easier to take than if some people are losing money and their peers and neighbors are not. Mm-hmm. Mm. So really, it's very de- it depends. But as you said, lifestyle uh, is a loss. If you, have, if you lose your lifestyle or, <laughs> excuse me, your standard of living, that is a loss. Sure, I think it is. Let's talk about the brain. What happens as we age? A lot of people are worried, you know, they lose their keys, they forget phone numbers as they get older. I mean, is that a sign of pre-dementia or is that part of aging? Let's talk about the brain. Sure, the brain is absolutely fascinating and we are learning so much about the brain. Every day there's more and more studies coming out that show us exactly how the brain works and how this relates to our psychological function. So it's really quite extraordinary what we know. We weren't capable of of looking inside the brain the way we are now even 20 years ago. So what do we know about brain aging? There is normal aging, and there's good news and there's bad news. From about your 40s on, <laughs> it seems pretty early, there's some deterioration in the actual physical structures of the brain. So the brain cells, which are called neurons, they start to degenerate a little bit. The different parts of the brain cell, the dendrites, which are the input part of the brain cell, and the axon, which is the output part of the brain cell, that starts to degenerate a little bit. And the brain cells die a little bit more quickly. They don't regenerate as quickly. So there is some, some you know, deterioration there. And the result of that is what we call a decrease in fluid intelligence. So you lose your ability to process information quickly and efficiently, and this shows up in reduced memory and reduced ability to take in new information quickly. And, and we can see this. What can do for that? Can the brain regenerate itself? Well, it does continue to regenerate, um, but there are things that we can do. Absolutely, we can exercise is incredibly important. So getting the blood going and into the brain is important. Social support is important, not smoking, not drinking too much, keeping physically fit, 
um, keeping mentally active and interested. All of this promotes healthy development of the, the brain. Okay. You know, we talked about money and happiness. Let's talk about genetics and happiness. Do we have a predisposition, Lisa, to happiness through our genes? There is some evidence for that. There's this notion of the happiness set point that we have this kind of basic level of happiness that we're kind of genetically programmed to. And if anything good happens to us or bad happens to us, we only go off that set point temporarily. And there is some evidence to support that. But there's also evidence that shows our environment does affect our happiness, that we're not impervious to our environment. We just have a general tendency um, towards a certain level of happiness. Hmm. When you're in your practice with clients, do you find that certain issues come up over and over? Is it money issue? Is it relationship issue? Is it uh, finding oneself, spirituality? Is it job-related? What would you say are the major issues that people seek you out for? Interestingly, money is not that frequent an issue. It only comes up when they have some practical concern with it. But that hasn't been a real focus. I would say relationships and job are the, the majority of what I deal with in my practice that relationships take up so much of people's uh, mental energy. And when they're dealing with the job situation, frequently it's their relationships in the job. So if I were to generalize my entire practice, I I would say it was human relationships in all areas of their life Mm -hmm. that's most important. Do you find that people, um, that when they come to you and they're looking for solutions, do you find that it's changed over the last few years. You know, we've had a tough economy. We've had a lot of global changes. Are people more stressed and anxious than they were 10 years ago, five years ago? Well, I certainly see people struggling with unemployment more than I did 10 years ago. Um, That's certainly more central ever since the 2008 um, financial crisis. Are they more stressed it's hard for me to know, mainly because I live in New York City and everybody's stressed here. Mm-hmm. So maybe if I took a broader sample across the country. Um, so I've seen more direct concern with unemployment, but I don't see an overall change in stress level. Mm-hmm. What, are, what would you offer our listeners today in terms of some very simple practical strategies that they can employ to lead health, healthier and happier lives emotionally? Well, I guess I would say we live in a complicated world. We live in a world with a lot of temptations and a lot of challenges. And it's really easy to get caught up in buying the new gadget, getting the new promotion, buying the new car, etc. And that, that doesn't make people happy. It gives you a boost for about a day and then you kind of go down again. I think what's really important is for people to stop and think and try to figure out what their priorities are. What is most important to them? What really makes them happy? And what really doesn't make that much difference over time? And then really aim their life towards maximizing what truly makes them happy. And what do you feel about coaching people who just want some direction in that whole process of finding out what's important to them? Do you think a coach is a good idea or a psychotherapist? Well, I think they do different things. 
um, a psychotherapist can help when there's real problems if you're really depressed or really having difficulties in your life. Um, and a psychotherapist can really help with uncovering deep-seated patterns that have caused problems. I think coaches serve different functions. I think coaches are there to help people set goals in their life and to kind of support them and offer some guidance in setting goals in their life. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it, it, the psychotherapy goes much deeper. Absolutely, yeah. It's now, more of a commitment also. You know, not everybody wants to be making a full commitment to psychotherapy, but they really just want some help and support mm-hmm. in, in setting some goals in their life, and I think coaching can be helpful with that. You know, this show is called Positive Living. It's Patricia Raskin, Positive Living. I've been doing this work about 30 years in terms of this kind of media work. So my question is, what is positive psychotherapy? So it's an interesting uh, point because psychotherapy for so many years was really focused more on the negative. We were focused on treating people with problems and making those problems go away. And then Martin Seligman developed an area called positive psychology in the past decade or so where he was really saying we've missed out on positive life. We've just been focusing on the negative. We have to focus not only what gets people less depressed but what gets them happy. What, what makes life worth living. And what he realized is it's not so much anything that you obtain or get. It's really the way you live your life and your attitude about how you go about living your life. So he promotes um, the virtues and the strengths. Uh, he's got a whole fairly complicated way of looking at things, and I do talk about it in my book. Um, but I think the major take-home message is to think about what gives you meaning, how you connect with other people, what you're good at, and to try to live your life on a day-to-day way to sort of maximize meaning and connection with others and also a sense of giving back to the community. And that's ultimately what makes you happy in life. Mm. Yes, I, I interview lots of people who talk about that, talk about giving back and how important it is. Let's talk about morality. Um, it seems as though it's really changed over the last 10, 15, 20 years. Certainly it's very different from our parents and grandparents, unless it isn't different and it was just hidden. But everything seems to be much more open now. Well, certainly the culture has changed a lot, and things that used to be not talked about, we didn't talk about sexuality. We also didn't talk about a lot of social problems. These are more out in the open, and I think that the emphasis on discretion that used to be prized 30, 40 years ago has has definitely uh, gone down. Um, But there's a fascinating body of work by a man named Jonathan Haidt who says that there are five instincts to morality that are kind of cultural universals, and different cultures and different groups emphasize different aspects of those um, sort of instincts of morality. So the first is harm care, that you don't want to be harming innocent people. The other is in-group loyalty, um, and the other is respect of authority. And then there's also purity, which is to try and protect against things that are morally disgusting. This may have to do with regulating sexual behavior or eating behavior or just personal cleanliness. Um, So that's four. I may have forgotten the fifth. Um, But the point being that different cultures emphasize, um, oh, fairness. Yes, that's the fifth, fairness. So liberal cultures tend to emphasize fairness and um, protection 
from harm. And conservative cultures tend to emphasize in-group loyalty, respect for authority, and purity. And I think that our culture over time is emphasizing more fairness and protection from harm and less authority, less purity, and less in-group loyalty. And, and where you sit as a psychotherapist, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I would say it's both. Mm. I mean, I think it's easy for us to forget how oppressive our culture was in many ways towards minorities, towards women. Child abuse was something that happened all the time but was never talked about. Domestic violence was something that happened all the time but was never talked about. And now we confront these issues, and I think this goes into the kind of fairness and, and harm care aspect of morality. However, what I do see is an excessive permissiveness. And I see people who have problems in my practice because they're insufficiently disciplined and they don't have any limits being set on them. And there's a sense that anything goes and everything is okay. And, and I think there's an excessive sense of entitlement. So I would say that's the downside of this emphasis on giving individuals more freedom to express themselves, that there's an upside and a downside. Interesting. Very interesting. One of the things that you talk a lot about in your book is Freud and Freud's ideas. How original were they? That's a fascinating thought because a lot of the way that Freud is taught is that he made up all of these ideas. But it turns out that pretty much everything that he came up with, he actually got from someone else. But he didn't get it so much from scientists. He got it from philosophers and poets and some of the German idealists who were famous philosophers that preceded him. Um, I believe Schopenhauer, who was a famous German philosopher, was interested in unconscious sexual instincts as motivating forces, which is kind of the core of, of Freudian theory. So he didn't really cite these people, so a lot of people don't know where he got these ideas. But what he did do is he synthesized all these different strains into a coherent theory and then applied it to science and to medical treatment of emotional problems. All right, we have a couple of minutes left, Lisa. What would you say are your closing thoughts? And my guest is Lisa Cohen. Her book is the Handy Psychology Answer Book, and uh, it talks about everything, what makes a marriage last, does the brain change, views on morality. It's really a wonderful reference book, and I really suggest it highly. <clears throat> Lisa Cohen is a licensed clinical psychologist, and she divides her work and her time between clinical work teaching and scientific research. She's now Associate Professor of Clinical Psychiatry and Director of Research for Psychiatry and Psychology at Beth Israel Medical Center in New York. So how can, what are your closing thoughts and how can people find your book? Well, I guess my closing thoughts would be that psychology is something that affects everybody and that if you're at all interested in the human mind, that you should get informed about psychology and about modern psychology and that it's, it's really fascinating stuff and that it's available for people to learn about. So in terms of finding my book, it should be available at all major bookstores and it's available on Amazon.com. And if you want to see some excerpts, I have a blog called The Handy Psychology Answers and that's on the Psychology Today website. So you can go to Psychology Today and then search for Handy Psychology Answers. And that gives, I have a couple of posts that show excerpts from my book. Okay, so again, the website one more time. It's psychologytoday.com, 
and then you can search for my blog, which is Handy Psychology Answers. And then the book is available at Amazon and any major bookstore. Okay. Thank you so much for being on the program. Well, thank you very much. It was a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Stay on the line. My guest again has been Dr. Lisa J. Cohen, Ph.D. Her book is The Handy Psychology Answer Book. And you can go online and find it. And again, um, the website again is, Lisa? Psychologytoday.com. And the blog is The Handy Psychology Answers. Okay. Thank you so much. All right, stay on the line. All right, folks, that wraps up Patricia Raskin Positive Living today on voiceamerica.com. Remember, stay healthy, stay happy, get the support you need, and know you can make your dreams come true. Until next time, I'm Patricia Raskin. Bye for now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 